Shall we pray? Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we would ask that you would bless both the preaching and the hearing of your word, that Christ might be preeminent, he might be exalted and lifted up, and therefore you would draw all to yourself. We ask humbly that you will apply your word to us in Jesus' name. Amen. You be seated. Please open God's word with me to Ephesians. Ephesians, the first six verses. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, page 977 in the Church Bible. Ephesians 4, this is God's word. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We are in the series, What is Christ's Church? What is a true visible church of Jesus Christ where God is displaying his glory? From our perspective, we look that there were three marks of a true church, not that a church doesn't need more than these, they do, they need more than the three marks, they need evangelism and prayer and nurture and diaconal ministry and love and fellowship, other things, but these three marks are the minimum because they are the three offices of Jesus Christ over his church. Is Jesus Christ the prophet? Is his word faithfully preached? Because that's the voice of Christ. Is Christ the priest? Are his sacraments biblically administered? Jesus said, as the Lord's Supper is administered, this is my body, my blood. Is Christ the king? Is his rule consistently applied? Jesus said that where two or three are gathered in in the matter of discipline, he was there present. These three marks are the very minimum of what is a true church. We can ask, isn't there more? Yes, there is more. And we began looking at answering that question of what is Christ's church by looking at the Nicene Creed last time. Council of Nicaea began May 20th, year 325, where 230 bishops from all of the Christian church met together to address false teaching and to ask, what is the biblical teaching on this? And they wrote the response, which we read and profess all Christians have since then, known as the Nicene Creed. And in that creed, we profess, I believe in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. These four are referred to as the attributes of the church. Last time we looked at two of them, Christ's church is Catholic and it's apostolic. Today, let's consider what what do we mean from scripture when we profess that we believe that the church is one. 
Isn't it common, maybe it was even in your own experience, when somebody comes to saving faith out of a Roman Catholic background and they come into a Protestant or Reformed church and they hear us reciting the creed, they first stumble over us hearing, affirming that we believe the church is Catholic and apostolic. Well, they get an answer to that, but then they stumble again. How can you possibly affirm that you believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church? Isn't it foolish to profess that? Just in the United States alone, there's over 2,000 Protestant denominations. How can you profess you believe in one church? Do you believe in one church? Today, let's consider from God's word that God has created one church. And secondly, then, we must maintain one church. We first of all affirm that there is one church because God has created one church. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit. There's one body, declarative. It's a fact, and therefore keep it. It's not an exhortation to become one body. It's not to create unity, but keep it because God has brought this about. Verses 1 through 6 are explaining there's one church because there's one founder. It's based upon the triune God. God the Father has one plan for one church. Verse 6, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. His glorious sovereignty that is ruling all things and sustaining all things is for what? It's for one church. Go back to Ephesians 1 and verse 4. We were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. God the Father chose one group of elect people to give to his son as his inheritance. And therefore, Ephesians calls us, we are the one commonwealth. We are the one covenant people. God has a plan for one church through history. You see it in chapter 3, verse 14. I kneel before the Father from whom his whole Literally, fatherdom in heaven and on earth derives its name. It's a collective term for all the descendants of the same father. It's not a good translation to say, as every family, as if God was a universal father of many different groups of people. It's not focusing on the many different groups of people. It's focusing on one group, one church. Better translation is, there is one whole family of which God is the father. It's his fatherdom, one family. All those who are born again and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, baptized into Christ, your siblings, and therefore you must act that way, 1 Corinthians 12, 25, that there be no division in the body, but have parts have equal concern for each other. 1 Corinthians 1, 10, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. The unity of the church, the oneness of the church, does not begin with us. It's not for our purposes. It's from God the Father who has created his one church, one holy nation, one family, one commonwealth. God the Father's plan for one church. Also God the Son's plan for one church. Verse 5, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ redeemed his people by his death upon his cross with his own blood. Verse chapter 1, verse 7, he loved his church and he gave his life for his bride, one bride. 
Ephesians 5.25. And so by purchasing himself a people, that is one people through all time. Ephesians 2.13, Christ has broken down that barrier wall that separated Jew from Gentile so that there be one family, Ephesians 3.6, one church in all of history. Lord Jesus Christ is the head over his body, his church. We derive our union with him. We derive our identity from him. Therefore, we derive our oneness from him. It's one body with one head. His purpose was to create one church, the fullness of Christ. Without Christ, we are not complete. And so Christ has given his church baptism as that outward sign and seal that unites a person into Christ's one visible church. You're not baptized Catholic, you're not baptized Baptist, you're not baptized Episcopalian, you're not baptized Presbyterian, you're baptized Christian. There's one baptism. And if it's done into the church, by the church, in the way that Christ commanded that it be administered in the name of the triune God, that baptism is not to be repeated. There's one baptism. And if it's been administered by the church, into the church, then it is a valid baptism. He's given that to us, a sign and seal that there's one church. Now, there's wheat and tares in the church, and we'll look at that in the weeks to come. But there's one visible church. So the Lord has given us the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which displays that a baptized person is part of, again, Christ's one church. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, the bread that we break, we participation in the body of Christ, because there is one loaf. You who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf, the one body, one Christ. Therefore, I appeal to all of you with one another so that there be no divisions among you and that you be perfectly united in mind and thought, 1 Corinthians 1.10. Is Christ divided? No. That body is not to be ripped. It's not to be torn apart. There's one Christ, one head of the church. The triune God is the basis of the one church. God the Father's plan for one church. God the Son's plan for one church. God the Holy Spirit's plan for one church. That's verses 3 and 4. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. We're baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we're all given one spirit to drink, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. So all those who have come to Christ and professed him and been baptized into his church, the Holy Spirit is indwelling his church as a temple, 1 Peter 2, 9. Just as the human body is pervaded by the soul, so the Holy Spirit pervades the church R.C. Sproul said the Holy Spirit literally is the cement that binds people together. If you have the Holy Spirit, you'll have an ache for the unity of the church. The church is created by the one Holy Spirit. Not only created by the Holy Spirit, but the church is built up by the one Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who gives a variety of gifts, not to divide the body, but to unite the body. That's why the eye needs the hand and the hand needs the foot, 1 Corinthians 12, 21. It's a diversity of gifts, all from the Holy Spirit. Why? So that we all reach unity, oneness, Ephesians 4, 13. The theological underpinning for the one church is the person of the triune God. 
If you're chosen by the Father in his family, if members of Christ's body by baptism and profession of faith, if God the Holy Spirit indwells you, this demands that we love the brethren and live at peace with other believers. If we're not preserving the unity of the church, you see that that's a sin against the triune God. Because the triune God has created the one church. Anything that disturbs the unity of the church is a very serious thing. And it's a sin against God. We're not pietists. And the worst expression of it, it's just me and Jesus. I don't say that disrespectfully. God has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, he does, believer. But you're not the center of the universe. He has one plan for his church, for the body of Christ. And the question is, are you a part of the visible church? The oneness of the Godhead, the oneness of the gospel, that undermines, that explains, that defines what we profess. We believe there is one church because God has created one church. Now, how does Paul begin chapter 4? He says... That's the truth. Secondly, we want to look at, therefore, we affirm that we must maintain one church. See how Paul starts chapter 4? I urge you, take this seriously. What's our calling to be? It's to maintain the unity of the church with hard work. And how are we to do that? You maintain unity with Christ's character. Consider both of those first. What's our calling? It's to maintain the unity of the church with hard work, verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Maybe your translation has a different word than eager, verse 3. It's the idea of show diligence. Hurry up. Get serious. Make every effort work at this. So it's, it's more than just having a desire and even a prayer for the unity of the church, but you're still standing back looking at it. No, this is roll up your sleeves and get to work. This is important work for every believer. Be eager to work at this, to maintain. It can be translated to keep. It's the word for a mother looking at her toddler at the edge of a swimming pool. She might be talking to her friend, but her eye is on that toddler, and she does not take her eye off of him. She is keeping, maintaining. That's the sense. The bond. Unity in the bond of peace. It's not an iron chain. This is the ligaments of the body. And these are in the present participles. Never, ever stop doing this. This is hard work. Maintain the unity of the church as your highest work so that there be no division in the body, 1 Corinthians 12, 25. Are you committed to do this? I hope somebody had a conversation with you when you became a member of the church that you come in with your eyes open so that when you do see friction between people, 
disunity, whatever you want to call a word on that spectrum, that you are committed to bring about that healing. We're living in a culture where this is not reinforced. We're living in a culture where if somebody offends you, you just cut them off. People are disposable. Relationships are disposable. Not in the Church of Christ. And the apostle wouldn't have exhorted us about this if he knew that it wouldn't happen and perhaps happen often. You can never relax, you can never say, but we get along so well. We must always strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit. If you are personally really committed to this, it's not going to be sufficient for you just to leave this to the elders and deacons. I know that they're working on relationships in the church. I I know that they're caring for the church. It's each member. might require you to have a difficult conversation with somebody, speaking the truth to them in love. But you know that it's needed to bring about healing. Or, or change the, the chairs. Maybe you need to ask for grace because somebody has to come to you and have a conversation with you. And are you going to be willing to listen and pray about what they say? Do you make this a regular matter of prayer that the Lord protect the unity of the church? Do you pray for grace to forgive all offenses? Let the matters go. Overlook a multitude of sins. Do you reflect on how you talk about other members of the church? Is it always for building up an edification? Not cutting down, not at all bringing about a divisive attitude. Are you on board with this? We have to watch our heart all the time. Teenager Kayla Montgomery is one of the best cross-country runners, but it's not easy for her to run. Her coach has to stand at the finish line of every race and literally catch her because at the end of every race, she's so exhausted, she collapses into the coach's arms. And the reason why she's such an inspiration to so many people is that Kayla has MS, and it takes everything out of her to run the race. But she's committed to endurance, and the hard work to run cross-country. The unity of the Church of Jesus Christ is infinitely more important than running a cross-country race. And we're to show even more effort at it than Kayla with MS. Maintain the unity of the Spirit. That's what we're called to do. So that brings up the question, how? How are we going to maintain the unity of the one church of Christ? Well, the answer is in verse 2. It's with Christ's character. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity. Humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance. What do you notice? They all have to do with you. They don't have anything to do with the other person changing. They don't have anything to do with changing the circumstances. Church unity starts with you, and it starts in your own heart. 
It starts with the attitudes that we have toward one another to maintain the unity. Because what happens when we are offended? What happens when we get slighted? What do we immediately begin to assume? At least my simple heart does. That other person, look where they're wrong. That other person, they don't see their immaturity. That other person, they don't see their divisiveness. They don't see the sins of their tongue. They don't see the sins of their heart. They don't see how stubborn they are. But moi? These are all starting with us. Here's how you maintain the unity of the Spirit. First of all, you must maintain it with all humility. In the culture of the New Testament, when the New Testament was written, this is not a virtue. The culture did not endorse humility. It was a word that you would never, ever claim as an attribute because it's the word for a slave that's groveling in the dirt before its master. And yet it's, we are to have a mind that has all humility. Think lowly of oneself, or C.S. Lewis put it, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And it's the, humility is the character of Christ. Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Humility is the most important virtue in this whole list. As Calvin writes in his Institutes, quote, when a certain rhetorician was asked what was the chief rule in eloquence, he replied, delivery. What was the second rule? Delivery. What was the third rule? Delivery. So if you ask me concerning the precepts of the Christian religion, what is the chief rule? First, second, third, and always I would answer humility. That's why humility in verse 2 is described with all humility. Every situation, every opportunity, every relationship, every situation, all humility. Peter says, 1 Peter 5, 5, clothe yourselves with humility. Humility is the character of Christ, and therefore that's the key to maintain unity. Because humility must and it will affect your repentance. Where do we have to all start with repentance? Humbly praying and seeing where's the log in my own eye. You can't do that if you're not humble. You're going to be looking at the speck in your brother's eye. You'll never bring about unity between relationships or in churches. Humility is the key to repentance. Do not rebuke a mocker, he will hate you. Rebuke a wise man, he will love you, Proverbs 9, 8. Because humility knows my own tendencies to overlook my sin and to give myself a pass and not others. Humility knows the deceitfulness of my own heart. 
Chris O'Donnell, actually it's impossible to change without this characteristic of humility. There's no such thing as a proud, repentant person. The two cannot cohabitate in the same heart at the same time. A humble person will focus on themselves in regards to their sin and what they're responsible for. They will be keenly aware of the enormous log protruding from their own eye, not the speck in their spouses. Humility is the key to maintaining unity because it affects your own repentance. But also, humility is the key to church unity because it must affect your rights. The believer is called to lay aside all claim on personal rights. If Jesus Christ, God incarnate, would set aside all his rights, not to be grasped, but to make himself of no reputation in order to go to the cross and to lay down his life and to die for us, to accomplish our salvation. What possible situation would there be for you to justify to seek your own glory? Humility is the willingness to have your name and your gifts unnoticed and unrewarded. You don't need the thanks. You don't need the praise. You don't need the parade for everything you've done. You give all expectations over to the Lord, and if he chooses to give them back, that's wonderful. But I expected that other person would have seen how much I put into this. I expected that that other person would have returned thanks. I expected that the person would have been at least grateful. I deserve. I'm... Whenever we're chafing, Frustrated. We're called to set our rights aside. But I want to set the record straight. I want them to I want them to think well of me. Humility is no claim on your own rights. So when you are offended because you think you're ignored or not praised or not thanked or not getting what you deserved or Is that coming from a sense of pride? God loves the humble, Isaiah 66, 2. This is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Isaiah 57, 15, for this is what the high and lofty one says. I live in a high and holy place and also with him who is contrite and humble in spirit. How are you going to maintain the unity of the church with the character of Christ? And that's, first of all, maintain it with all humility, the humility of Christ. And secondly, it's to maintain unity with gentleness. Or your translation might have meekness. It's translated both ways into English. With meekness, receive the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. When, when we hear the scriptures, we don't argue about it. We don't debate it. We don't fight it. We receive it with meekness, with gentleness. That's this word, a gentle submission. Now, gentleness has nothing to do with being timid or soft or weak or not stirring the waters at any cost. That's not gentle. That's not meekness. Not having a backbone, not willing to say the truth, not flabby, not tiptoeing around, avoiding issues, not giving way to the wishes of others at all costs. No, that's not the word. The word for meekness, the word for gentleness is actually a word from farming. It's used of a wild animal that has been trained. A horse before it can be 
ridden has to be broken in. It's, it's wild. It's only when its will is broken that you're able to ride it. You don't break its spirit, but you break its will so that he's not his own authority anymore. And when that horse is broken in, you can ride it without fear. You can tell it what to do, and it obeys. It's given up its own authority. A broken spirit still has lots of strength, lots of courage to say the truth in the middle of an evil generation. But the will is broken. The will is submissive to God to obey his authority. That's gentleness. Van Til had the expression, we are to be mild in manner, strong in matter. Hmm. Mild in manner, strong in matter. Maintain unity with gentleness because gentleness is the character of Christ. Ferguson pointed out that meekness is the only personal quality about Jesus that he drew specific attention to. Matthew eleven twenty eight. in contrast to the Pharisees standing on the street corners to be seen by men, he disdained the limelight. He entered Jerusalem lowly and riding on a donkey, Zechariah 9, 9. He could have summoned the angels for his protection in the garden. He didn't need to take abuse from anybody. But he used his power to not claim his rights in order to serve us and to lay down his life for us. That's gentleness. Gentleness is the key to maintain unity because gentleness is, again, not insisting on our own rights, even under pressure to do so. It's not retaliating against. It's not gossiping. It's not wanting harm to those who've wronged us. When we're tempted to be angry and provoked and annoyed, there's no striving. There's no arguing. We don't lash out in anger. We don't lash out in control. You might be right, and the other person might be 100% wrong. But the way you're responding to them is just as important as saying the truth. Paul said, we were gentle among you. That's the word. Like a nursing mother taking care of her children. First Thessalonians 2.7. It's a gentle answer that turns away wrath. Proverbs 15.1. That's the key to unity. You must be gentle and meek with one another. George Bethune wrote, Seldom do we reflect that not to be gentle is sin. Perhaps no grace is less prayed for or less cultivated than gentleness. How do you maintain the unity of the church? With the character of Christ. What is the character of Christ? It's all humility. It's gentleness. It's patience is the third word. King James has long-suffering. It means to endure for a long time. To hold back the rudeness, to hold back the retaliation when you're enduring pain for a long time. It's the opposite of a short fuse. It's, It's the opposite of giving up on somebody. It's the opposite of cutting off a relationship because they hurt you. Patience, you're only going to know how to do this when you've been wronged and sinned against. You can't be patient with people when you like them. You can't be patient with people when everything's going well. By definition, you can only be patient with people who are aggravating. And guess what? Sometimes you are aggravating to others. 
patience is to endure that. Proverbs 15:18, a patient man calms a quarrel. John Calvin wrote an honest confession in a letter to Butte, sir. He said, quote, I have not so great a struggle with my vices, great and numerous as they are, as I have with impatience. My efforts are not absolutely useless, yet I have never been able to conquer this ferocious wild beast. I appreciate so much that he confessed that. Patience is the character of Christ. Isn't that the way he puts up with us? The Apostle Paul knew that and he wrote about that. He was, he was just absorbed with that. First Timothy 1.16, it's because of God's infinite patience. Long-suffering with sinners like me, I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, insolent, thoroughly despicable. But he had mercy on the likes of me. What patience. Do you reflect on how you have tried Jesus' patience with you this week? Even today? You see how it's the key to unity, isn't it? It's the character of Christ. We have to be amazed at how God is so patient with me before you can ever be gracious and kind and long-suffering with others. But if you know it, you're really convinced of it, that God is patient with me. He's given me so much time to repent again and again and again. You're going to give others time to repent You're going to give others the time to change. You don't have to have the last word. You don't have to always be right. Certainly not to respond evil for evil. The wrath of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. It must be a willingness to absorb injury rather to inflict injury, to bear up when you're sinned against, committing yourself to your avenger, Romans 12, rather than returning good for evil. Piper writes, Now, by nature, none of us likes to be interrupted when things are going well. We do not like delays in our plans. We all have a strong craving for a trouble-free life. And we tend to get irritated when our best laid plans go awry. We don't like traffic tie-ups on the freeway when we have an appointment. We don't like overheated cars on vacation. We don't like for babies to cry through the night. We don't like checks to get lost in the mail. We like it when life flows according to plan and pleasure, and when it doesn't, our nature is to be provoked and to complain and to grumble and to murmur and to be angry and to be critical. But Paul says, love is patient. So what becomes of the whole side of us that has a short fuse, that easily complains, that easily grumbles, that easily gets angry, it easily criticizes, the answer is, it must die. To love like this is to die. If I'm to be like this, something in me must die. My strong craving for a trouble-free life must die. My need for an uninterrupted schedule must die. My demandingness that frustrations and interference get out of my way must die. We simply cannot have patience until we die to ourselves. 
and our rights and our comfort. Maintain unity with all humility, with gentleness, with patience, with putting up with or forbearance. And you notice how it's modified. In love. You can put up with people, but that can simply be tolerating or patronizing. (laughs) But it's to be in love for being thankful to show them the opportunity of patience. Love bears all things, 1 Corinthians 13, because forbearance is the character of Christ. We sang in the hymn, what if he treated us the way that we treat one another? Why is forbearance the key to maintain unity? Well, I would define it as forbearance is showing patience for a long time. It's really closely related to patience, but now is adding in the element of time. When others are annoying and harsh and hard to deal with, you're not to retaliate. You're to model Christ's mercy. It's the opposite of slander. It's the opposite of gossip. It's the opposite of quick judgments. It's the, it's the refusal to make every opportunity to see the other in the best light. First Corinthians 13, there's no record of wrongs, always hopes, always trusts. Praying for good for my enemy. And if we are to put up, forbear, it means that people will not always be easy to get along with and turn it around. You and I won't always be the easiest to get along with either. Get along with each other by God's grace. There was a sad division during the Great Awakening between Wesley and Whitfield. Wesley broke away and someone asked Whitfield that whether he would see John Wesley in heaven. And Whitfield answered, no, no, I won't see him in heaven. Because Wesley is going to be so close to God's throne and I'm going to be in the far back that I'll never, I'll never see him. That's the heart that praises God, it keeps no record of wrongs. We know we've passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. First John 3.14 Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. First John 4.11 One family. Siblings. Maintain the unity that the triune God has accomplished Maintain it with all gentleness. Maintain it with patience. Maintain it with forbearance. Putting up with a long haul. Which brings us all the way back to number one. Maintain it with all humility. As you see, it's all humility that can only do all the rest. It's when you're humble that you won't feel threatened so that you can express gentleness. When you're humble, you're not driven by pride, so it will keep you patient with others. It's when you're humble that you'll see your own sins and failures, so you'll bear with the sins and faults of others. It's only when we're, you know, the humility of Christ that we'll, we'll take the time to ask the questions, to understand where that person is coming from and why they're frustrated and why the division and why the alienation. We won't assume, we won't condemn. What did you mean? You can't ask that question in gentleness unless you're humble. 
Do you see then that Christian unity does not start with correcting the other person's theology? It doesn't start with telling them where they're wrong. Later in the chapter, the unity of the faith is important, absolutely. Jude 3 and 4 were to contend contend for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. But the unity of the church doesn't start with screaming correct theology at each other. It starts in your own heart. And whenever you are isolated from another believer, whenever you are frustrated with another believer, whenever there is alienation from another believer, it starts in you. You need to get on your knees and say, show me, Father, where I am not humble and gentle and patient and bearing with. Show me my heart. See, then you'll be ready to say the truth. 2 Timothy 2.24, when you do have that opportunity to say the truth, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, bearing, patiently, evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. There's three on the list here. But you can't do that until your own heart is right. That's where church unity starts. It starts inside. Do you see that church unity does not start with the other person? It starts with moi. So if you are alienated from another believer, whether in the church, whether in the home, in their family, wherever it is, even though they are 100% wrong in what they've done, they're not going to be restored to you unless your attitude is patient and gentle and forbearing humility. You won't be restored to them until we do the work first in our own hearts. Whenever there's a root of sinful division in the body, wherever it is, wherever there's a believer estranged from another believer, somewhere there's pride. It's not humility. Church unity has to start with our own hearts, and then do you see that church unity must start with Christ? It's union with Christ, being a believer, and because of his death to purchase our redemption, that there's only one church and that there's one bride and one household. He's the head, we're the body, and so it has to start with Christ and union with Christ. And then it has to start with his character. He's the standard, and he will give you the power. Unless we acknowledge that we need to abide in the vine, you can do nothing. You need the spirit of Christ because it's his fruit that is the gentleness and the patience and the long-suffering. If you feel today his need for your work in your own heart in any of these areas, he's given you a, a warm, sincere invitation. Anyone who comes to me, I won't ever drive him away. Come to him today for life, for salvation, for the work of the Holy Spirit in our own heart. Oh, Father, bring me further down this road. Give me more of these graces. We are to understand and affirm that we are already one church derived from God's person. If you're trusting in Christ alone, by faith alone, for salvation, 
You're part of this one plan of history, his physical church. And are you committed to maintain the one church with work, with labor? Anyone you need to be restored to today? Any relationship you need to work on? Then start here. There's only one church, one faith, one salvation. But there's also one manner in which they are worthily adorned in our lives with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Richard Phillips. Pray for the grace of the Holy Spirit to keep us in unity. Shall we pray? Father, this searchlight of your word has shown us so many things that we are ashamed of and need to confess and how quickly we are to judge people and reach conclusions about them which are not, certainly not gracious. And when people offend us, we quickly, quickly judge rather than looking inside checking to see if we've responded with gentleness and patience. We're so quick to want to take that first chair in the center of the universe and be served rather than to serve. Our Father, we confess these sins and many, many others. So grateful that the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed us from all sin. Our prayer is that we might know Christ more, that his life by his spirit would be filling us. We wouldn't even be aware that we are showing humility and patience and gentleness and forbearing. It just becomes the life of Christ in us. How we pray for that. And how we pray for the healing of the church We pray that in our lifetime we would see churches of like mind be united. Our Father, we do profess, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Give us grace to preserve the unity of the Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.